My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 2, Something Evil Awaits. Walk into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Tis the prettiest parlor that you ever did spy. The way into my parlor is up a winding stair, and I have many pretty things to show you when you are there. Oh no, no, said the little fly, to ask me is in vain, for who goes up your winding stair can ne'er come down again. Mary Howitt, The Spider and the Fly. Jamie and Marta Pendleton had two children, a girl, Sandra, eight years old, and a boy, Mitchell, ten years old. Both children had their mother's thick brown hair, but they had the long Pendleton nose. They were seldom rowdy and extremely well-mannered, and some a parent's dream. But not early Friday morning, going to the airport and seeing Grandpa and Grandpa DuPont had them all keyed up. They had never seen Jamie's father, and his mother had died many years before. They raced around the 12-room Spanish decor home, picking up the extra articles of clothing and toys as they waited for the taxi to appear in the driveway. Whoa! shouted Jamie, raising his eyebrows as he stopped his gallivanting son. Okay, Mitchie, where do you think you're going with that baseball glove? I always play ball when I'm not in school, Daddy. Jamie laughed and bounced the boy up and down on his knee. I suppose you think it's just like California in New Hampshire. It's freezing up there. Can't be that cold up there, said the boy as he wiggled away from his father. Not that cold, asked Jamie as he rose and contorted his arms as if he were a monster. <laughs> he said in the scariest voice. He crunched his face into a thousand wrinkles and facetiously began chasing the boy around the house. It's the monster, Sandy, he called to his little sister and got just close enough to her daddy to feel the fright. The game was always fun and they played every time Jamie was home. I'm going to get you, cried Jamie, grunting and groaning as he pursued his way through every room. They always kept just barely ahead of him, finally running into the kitchen. He moved through the hallway, however, and caught them as they emerged out the other entrance, and they felt the pretended fear, knowing everything would be all right once the game was over. He lifted them upward and carried them across the room into the kitchen, over to the refrigerator. So, you don't think it's cold in New Hampshire, eh? He laughed. What are you going to do with us, monster? Asked Mitchie. It's the deep freeze, replied Jamie as he pushed open the freezer door with his shoulder and the steamy air came rushing into the room. There, he said as he looked at the frozen slivers of meat. That is St. Argus. That meat? asked Mitchie, knowing it would provoke him. No, Ninny, the cold. They looked at each other from under his arms, and he lowered them to the floor. In an instant, they scampered out of the kitchen and back into the bedroom, still laughing and yelling. It's, it is cold, cried Mitchie as he passed his mother as she came up the cellar stairs. She was amazingly passive and distant as she came into the kitchen. Jamie was still laughing from his little performance. Well, you're certainly in a good mood, she said, trying to force his smile. And why shouldn't I be playing with my own kids, he said, as he tried to restrain his merriment. You scared them half to death, she said sarcastically. 
she could sense the relationship they had with Jamie, carefree and playful. Not like her, she was the disciplinarian, the drill sergeant, who got them ready for school in the morning, the director of their activities. Jamie, however, was the knight in shining armor, who came on the scene after the problems had been straightened out and after the orders had been given. Well, the monster got them again. The kids like playing that game. I wish I could relate to them the way you do, she said, looking for a sympathetic answer. You're their mother, for God's sakes. He opened the refrigerator door and took out a pitcher of Kool-Aid. He poured it into a glass and was about to take a sip when he saw the despondent look in her dark eyes. What? What's the matter? I'm still apprehensive about this trip. I can't explain it, she said, not telling him the whole truth. I'm scared, Jamie. Damn scared. And I don't know why. How the hell can I tell you that? You just think I'm crazier than you and Johnson already think I am. Maybe we shouldn't go to St. Argus. Something is waiting for us there. Something evil. I know it. I just know it. Bad flashes. Bad flashes. Oh, I just think you're apprehensive, scoffed Jamie, as he tried to give his version of what Johnson had called direction. Just think you're going to have a good time, and you will, he said as he told her, as if it were all that simple. Easy to say, she said, desperately waiting for some consolation. This is, he said as he downed the Kool-Aid, going to be the best vacation we've ever had. No problems, no stress, just relaxation. So think positive, okay, Marta? I'll try, she whimpered as she started to leave the room without her reassurance. Your mother sounded so excited when you called, he said to her as she left the room. She was, said Marta as she disappeared down the hallway. Well, I'm going to call Bernie Weissman. I want to stop at his apartment before we go over to your parents' house. Did you get his number from your mother? By the phone, she called from the bedroom. Jamie set down the glass and walked over to the phone on the counter. He glanced at Weissman's number and started dialing. Weissman had come to St. Argus from somewhere in New York City to attend St. Argus College. Jamie and Weissman had become fast friends. Jamie being the industrious rich kid and Weissman was the hard-working cynic. In fact, he once had suspicion that Weissman had feelings toward Marta, but he dismissed them as foolish. It had been almost 10 years since he had even talked to Weissman on the telephone, and he still pictured the dark-haired Weissman as he looked back in 1967, flowing hair down to his shoulders and black-rimmed glasses that always kept sliding down his nose. That was many years ago, and as the line rang, he tried to imagine what Weissman would look like so many years later. Hello, said a tired voice from across the country. Bernie? Bernie, is that you? <clears throat> said the voice, clearing his throat. Yes, this is Bernie Weissman. Bernie, this is Jamie, he said with enthusiasm. Pendleton? Jamie Pendleton? Said the voice as if a new life had been instilled into it. feels good to hear your voice, old pal. Good to hear you. God, it's been a long time. Bernie, we're coming back to St. Argus tonight, he boasted as if Weissman was supposed to sit up and beg. Hey, that's great. Hey, you and Marta, right? And the kids. Kids, that's right, <laughs> he said excitingly. Yep, a boy ten and a girl eight. Well, that's great, Jamie. 
Bernie, how is Marta? Well, Bernie, I just want to warn you, Marta isn't very well. She's had a raft of psychological problems. Marta? Marta? He asked, refusing to believe it. Marta? Yes, she's been seeing things. Flashes, she calls them. Black and white flashes, lasting only for a few seconds. Gruesome. I won't go into the details, but I just wanted to warn you. Why, uh, why, yes, of course, replied Weissman. Now, Bernie, I would like to see you. Sure, sure, that would be great, Jamie, real great. We should be back in town by five or six. I have a short errand to take care of, and then we'll go over to the DuPonts. Well, Harriet DuPont told me you lived on the second floor of that old yellow house on the top of May Street. Right, right, right. Up the front stairs to the second floor. It's a door on the right. Strange. What's strange? asked Jamie. I just have this uh, weird feeling, like we've had this conversation before anyway. I can't believe this. Right out of the blue. You and Mata, you're coming back. I, I really look forward to this, Jamie. This is great. Good, good. We've got a lot of time to make up there, old boy. You bet, you bet. I'll see you then uh, late this afternoon, then. Right. See you then, Burn. Goodbye, said Jamie. Weissman set down his telephone. The voice had sounded the same, but Weissman had changed physically, and his life had plunged downward ever since that sunny day in June of 1967 when they all went their separate ways. He was a physical wreck. His long black hair had nearly all fallen out and only touched the top of his ears. He was dirty and unwashed, and he seemed pale and peaked as he crossed the front room of his unkempt apartment. He grabbed a half bottle full of whiskey, lifting it to his lips, swallowed the liquid that had kept him going over the past few years. Because Bernie Weissman graduated from St. Argus College and had gone his separate way to nowhere, his life had become one dead end after another. He drifted from job to job and finally ended up back in St. Argus. Redeeming himself, he took night courses and got his teaching certificate. That was 12 years before, and now he had come to the point where every day was a struggle without the booze. Time had passed him by. Jamie left the kitchen and walked down the hall to the bedroom. Marta was still packing clothes in the suitcase. She turned around as he entered the room. Did you hear any of that, Marta? He asked as she folded her sweater. Yes, we're going to Bernie's apartment for a couple of hours, she said as the past came to life in her mind and she was positive Weissman would be thinking the same thing. In the days before their graduation from St. Argus, Marta and Jamie had a tremendous fight that threatened to split them forever. She and Weissman had gone out and gotten drunk. In that madness that followed, they spent the night together. Jamie came running back to Marta on the day of graduation. He was deeply sorry for the argument and asked her to marry him. When she accepted, Weissman was distraught and almost missed the graduation. In light of all this, Jamie had never found out. Marta was understandably upset. I would just appreciate it once in a while, Jamie, if you would please let me know what's going on. And besides, I still have that feeling about St. Argus. And what errand do you have to go on? It's nothing, nothing at all. I'll be back early, then we'll go over to your parents' house. But where are you going? It has to do with my father, all right? 
Just let me handle it, Martyr. What about him? Are you making peace with him? She asked as she put her hands on her hips. Peace? Never. I have some things to take care of, and then we'll relax. Things you have to take care of. Things you can't discuss with your wife. Maybe I can see the real purpose of this trip. No, Mater, I... You don't care about me. Jamie was under pressure now, and the last thing he wanted was Marta asking questions. Perhaps if he just let a little out, she'd be satisfied. I'm checking on some details. It's just an accounting thing. It won't take long. And you tell me I have problems. You're obsessed with your father's demise. You really are. Go ahead, she said as she started packing again. Do what you have to do, but that better be the end of it. I want to straighten myself out during this trip. I promise, Marta, when I'm done, the minute I get back, things will be different. The entire vacation will be devoted to you. Sure. If you just... She was interrupted by the two children. They were dressed in their heavy olive parkers and rumbled into the bedrooms. Is this cold enough, Daddy? asked Sandy. Jamie's preoccupied mind popped back to reality, and with a wide grin he picked them up in his arms, much to Marta's chagrin. She was getting increasingly envious and jealous of his attentions toward them and their returned affections to him. That's more like it, guys. It will be cold up there, he said, shaking them as he let them down. Okay, you guys, come with Mommy now. You have to wash up before the cab gets here. Now, come on. Oh, do we have to? They both asked Jamie. Do we have to, Daddy? Yes, you do, and you better get there before the monster comes, he said, raising his arms into the air. He watched them with delight as they disappeared around the corner, followed by their mother. Damn this power plant thing. He would have to be quick, get it over with, so he could devote his time to Marta. He was thinking now as if it were an experiment in his lab. Every angle of the problem would be performed logically, testing each possibility to bring Marta back on track. He would use the effort he had tirelessly put into his job. That perseverance and a relaxing vacation would be the key to destroying his father, as well as getting Marta's life back in order. In the other room, Marta wet the face cloth and cleaned her son's face. She felt maternal now, acting in accordance with what she had been told she must do, Maybe the children felt this maternal bond, too, and it would help propel them into adulthood. Strangely, she had never felt that end of the maternal bond because her mother had been so distant and removed from her growth. But that was long ago. She wiped her daughter's face and then sent both of them out to their father. Her childhood was long ago. She looked into the mirror, the fluorescent light casting harsh shadows on her round face, Although she was not that old, she was under the strain of her problems. Her deep brown eyes, which once were directed toward the future with great zeal, now looked backward to the days that were no more. It was all hopeless. She would never go back, and it made her shudder with fear. A slow film of black and white light covered her mirror reflection. In her mind, she was moving along the highway to St. Argust, just over the mountains on the southern part of town. The valley was spread before her and the river was on her right. In the distance down the road, she could see the sign entering St. Argus. The day became darkened and the headlights of a car shined on the sign. Something was on that sign, something she could not quite make out. The lettering was obscured and then it ended. The flash was over and she stared at her face, her wide pupils closing back to normal. She raised her hands to her face and wanted to scream. 
Screaming, however, would just bring her another step closer to the sanitarium. My God, my God, what's happened to me? Make it stop. God, make it stop. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, thy comfort me. Oh, God, what was on that sign? It looked like blood. No, no, it couldn't have been blood. No, it just doesn't make any sense. She burst from the bathroom, attempting to keep some semblance of composure. But there was no one in the house, and her heart started thumping. They had all gone outside. She could see them playing under the palm trees in the front yard. Their suitcases were on the lawn, all ready to go. But her suitcase was still in the bedroom. It was as if they had left her behind once again. Join us next time for Maya the Face by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.